I wanted to welcome everybody here. We've got a really um, international and national crowd. And I was just saying earlier, it's one of the real pleasures of Zoom, despite everything and its limitations, um, is the fact that it does mean that we can have a conversation across borders, uh, which has given me a lot of pleasure over the last few months, I have to say. Uh, so I want to welcome all of you, those who've uh, returned to these meetings and anybody who's new. My name is Wendy Earle and I convene the Arts and Society Forum and I convene it for uh, as part of the Academy of Ideas. The Academy of Ideas, if you um, haven't heard of it, is uh, an organisation that promotes discussion and debate about the issues of the day and is very much a free speech, freedom of expression um, organisation. Uh, they have a small team of uh, staff. Um, I'm a volunteer and um, they've been running throughout this crisis, uh, but unable to organise the kinds of events that uh, have, um, have made the Academy of Ideas what it is um, over the past, uh, how long? I don't know, 20 years? And um, so it, it would be really good is if you could make a donation uh, of any size or scale. This event is free, as you know. All the events that have been organised by the Academy of Ideas on Zoom have all been free and there have been many and there will be many more as long as this goes on. Um, but uh, it, they need funding, so please do make a donation um, if you possibly can. Um, okay, so we're living um, in a strange times as the cliche goes and one of the things I think that um, you know has really struck me and, and the reason why I organized decided to organize this event is that we um, well certainly I, I, I love the arts I'm not an artist but I've um, I, I'm a participant a very active participant and I can't tell you how much I've missed being able to engage in the various art forms that I enjoy and it was something I used to take for granted that I never ever thought that it was possible that arts venues could close down or be closed down in the way they have, or that they could stay closed down for so long. I, I really did, um, in my um, foolish optimism, think they would open up, um, you know, a couple of months ago. So this, I think this um, discussion is very important because it is about trying to um, engage with um, the issues that it presents us. Uh, what kind of world can we expect? Uh, you know, how, how, how are things going to develop in the arts? Um, will, will they recover? Will all the arts recover? <clears throat> will any of them recover? Um, you know, I think we're, you know, my, my immediate subjective feeling is that we're, li we're living through a really, really bad situation for the arts. Um, but, Perhaps we need to examine that and um, I ho I'm hoping that some people at this discussion will be able to bring a more optimistic perspective and will be able to talk about perhaps the opportunities that um, are presented by this. Um, you know, perhaps this is, we're going through a process of creative destruction and, um, so, you know, the phoenix will ari arise from the ashes and we'll be able to, um, you know, in a year's time look back on this as an opportunity that um, particularly the more entrepreneurial um, artists and arts institutions have, have made it as much as they possibly can out of. 
So um, that's what we're going to be kind of broadly talking about. Um, the discussion is going to be quite wide ranging and uh, I don't think you should expect any answers, but hopefully we'll be able to clarify some of the issues. And I've got a really um, brilliant panel uh, that I'm very proud to have been able to pull together from across the arts. And I'm going to introduce them in order of speaking. And uh, then what I'll do is let each of them speak for, I've told them a strict five minutes. Uh, then we'll come back and have a bit of discussion across the panel. And then um, I'll open uh, the whole discussion out to the, to, uh, the floor, I was going to say, but the audience anyway. Um, okay, so the first speaker on my list is Manik Govinda. Uh, Manik Govinda, Govinda, you may know him. He's a, quite a controversial figure uh, in the arts world. He speaks his ma mind. He's a very brave person, in my view. Um, he doesn't flinch from the controversies that are out there. Um, he is a consultant and he mentors young artists and arts professionals, and his um, specialist area is in the contemporary arts, so he'll focus on that. Next, we have Joel Mills. Joel is Senior Music Programme Manager at the British Council, and before uh, lockdown, uh, she travelled a lot in, um, in order to coordinate, um, support and promote uh, international events, music and the arts events and projects. So she will bring um, both the music aspect to the discussion and also perhaps a bit more of the international picture. Then we have Alison Small. Alison Small works in film and television and she's a production training manager at Netflix. And uh, she has had a long career in film production um, and particularly in the professional development of filmmakers, people involved in film making, perhaps I should be so. Our fourth speaker will be Jonathan Baz. Uh, Jonathan Baz doubles up as a, an accountant and a uh, theatre critic, and he um, writes a blog on the theatre, tweets a lot on it, and has extensive um, experience in, in observing developments in the theatre. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say, though I suspect it's going to be a pretty horrific story that he's telling. Um, and finally, Mo Lovett. Mo Lovett, um, she's is program and events uh, co um, coordinator for the Academy of Ideas. And she's had long experience in uh, the arts, particularly in the North. And um, she'll be talking, uh, her, her, her specific background is in community arts, but she's got a very wide interest. So she'll be drawing some of the threads together at the end of um, the panel discussion. As I said, everybody get a quick five minutes and then to kick things off and then we'll let things roll. Um, so first off is Manik. Um, hi, just want to make sure that everyone can hear me. Yes. Yeah, good. Uh, thanks, Wendy, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, so I'm just going to kind of give maybe a couple of more kind of personal uh, experience. The last exhibition I went to until Saturday was around mid-March, um, uh, so it's been uh, quite a while. Um, and um, there's some degree of optimism because uh, in, the, in the visual arts sector and uh, um, uh, museums, um, there's been quite a few recent reopenings of, uh, of galleries and museums. 
Um, so, uh, for example, I went to, well, my first visit after four months or so um, was uh, at Tate Britain on Saturday to go and see the uh, Aubrey Beardsley exhibition. Uh, and it's quite, uh, it was incredibly, uh, uh, you know, it's quite a profound moment actually revisiting uh, Tate Britain. And uh, quite an apt exhibition, actually, I thought, you know, because Aubrey Beardsley, um, he died at 25 years old of tuberculosis. And tuberculosis is still a, a, a major global pandemic, um, kills one and a half million people uh, across the world. Um, so that's an interesting kind of resonance uh, when I was um, seeing that exhibition. Um, so yes, the galleries are opening, museums are opening uh, since uh, uh, late July. And um, uh, uh, rather than just, you know, rocking up now, uh, you have to, uh, it's like an appointment system, you do have to book in advance and book a slot. Um, and that's no bad thing, in my opinion, um, because, um, you know, I think one of the benefits that <laughs> for the visual arts sector that COVID has brought about uh, are smaller numbers in the galleries and museums. It's a much more intimate experience. And for me, I really found that quite profound because I was able to appreciate and contemplate seeing art with a greater sensibility compared to, let's say, audience figures for Tate Britain last year in 2019. Uh, Tate sorry, Tate Modern, attracted 6.1 million visitors uh, uh, last year. And Tate Britain attracted 1.8 million uh, visitors. Now that's not gonna happen. Um, uh, those, vis those kind of figures are not gonna happen again for quite a while. Um, so that's, um, I think that's a positive. It's um, rather than kind of, you know, craning your neck to try and go and see something. And I, I remember going to the William Blake um, uh, late last year, uh, which was um, <laughs> it's like a harrowed sail. You could hardly see anything. You had to kind of just kind of uh, push and shove a bit. Um, so, so that was uh, quite a, a, an amazing uh, experience, which I haven't had for so many years, decades even, uh, at a major uh, international um, um, public museum. So, so that could be a benefit for the contemporary visual arts sector uh, and museums. Um, obviously, we've seen a growth in more online activity. Um, so a lot of these galleries and museums do have, um, uh, were having a, a, lot, a lot of uh, public participation, public engagement um, through workshops um, and talks. So none of that's happening in real life at the moment, um, in real space. Uh, but there are uh, online paid workshops. Uh, so, you know, for example, um, South London Gallery uh, in, in Peckham uh, is reopening soon, um, but they have a lot of online activity, so you can do everything, uh, and many other galleries are doing this, uh, uh, in terms of workshops and uh, activities in, uh, in your uh, home space. Uh, everything from creating your own natural dyes, uh, which will cost you about 15 to 20 pounds for a workshop, to um, learning about Japanese Korean embroidery. You know, so it's quite um, uh, on one level, potential international reach uh, and quite a lot of that are going to be paid um, uh, events. Um, the smaller galleries are still, um, sorry my internet might be unstable, but um, the smaller galleries are still struggling to open um, but you know many will start doing so from September and uh, commercial galleries are, are operating uh, by appointment only. It's um, 
uh, you know, it's all about sales there, not so much about the public. Um, so the, the visual arts sector is, is looking optimistic. Um, and, you know, how it's affecting artists, that's a different um, uh, story altogether. A lot of artists are struggling uh, to um, find uh, informal spaces, to make, to show work. Um, but there are a couple of, um, well, there's one particularly uh, brilliant and, for me, highly optimistic and heartening um, uh, activity that's grown. Uh, and that's something called the Artist Support Pledge. Um, so one artist, British artist called Matthew Burroughs, uh, came up with an idea. Uh, he called it the Artist Support Pledge. And uh, its proposition is, is absolutely beautiful in its simplicity. And it was an emergency response to the a platform, um, which is on Instagram mainly, where artists post images of their work uh, on Instagram that they're willing to sell to the general public for no more than £200. And uh, each time an artist reaches uh, £1,000 of sales, uh, they then pledge to spend £200 on buying another artist's work. So it cuts out the agents, cuts out the gallerist, cuts out the middleman or middlewoman. Um, and the buyer can be anyone. Uh, and the transaction is directly with the artist uh, through direct messaging. And this model has been a lifeline for artists facing hardship. Um, to date, uh, I think the Artist Support Pledge has over... 350,000 posts on Instagram and the last time I looked has generated over 20 million pounds for artists across the world. Uh, but the relationship for me is more than just about buying arts. These are kind of human acts of community solidarity, uh, human acts of care, love, and also the, the pleasure uh, that these artworks will give to uh, the general public who can spend up to 200 pounds on a piece of work. Um, there are online commissions and exhibitions, so the virtual gallery spaces um, uh, uh, have uh, been existing. Can you uh, wind it up? Problematic. Uh, video art is on the growth uh, in terms of uh, online um, uh, ex exhibitions. And also artist studios uh, are still in operation. So I don't think it's that bad a picture in the visual arts sector. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks ever so much. That was good. Okay, next we have um, Joel. Hi, can you hear me okay? Good. Um, Manik, I wish I shared your optimism that you have for the visual arts that I do for music, particularly in terms of opening up. I'll be looking forward to going to galleries, but I think the way that music venues will be opening up won't be such a positive experience initially. Um, I think it's impossible to anticipate what lies in the road ahead with absolute confidence. And I think we're in for quite a bumpy ride in the music sector. Um, the live sector has been hit particularly hard um, with the close down of concert halls and venues. And the summer should have seen a range of festivals happening at, at this point. Um, I think it's important to remember that the arts and music are quite a complex ecosystem as well, with lots of interdependent sort of layers. Uh, the sector is made up of many freelance artists, musicians, composers, and there's a vast array of behind-the-scenes production teams from sound engineers through to tour managers, record labels and publishers. And everything is very, very independent, um, interdependent rather. Um, the sector is made up of quite DIY stuff, really big commercial sort of promoters and entrepreneurs, 
parts of the music sector that never touch the funding sector. Um, so it's in quite an unusual position that even the very commercial sort of organisations have crashed in on their reserves, um, as have big institutions. It's a usually fairly robust sector that's had to deal with quite seismic shifts in the past, um, some of which are still going on between the sort of uh, physical to digital and streaming models have been quite um, undercutting for the sector. Uh, the support package from the government was really welcomed, but I mean, it's not going to save everybody. And I think the sector is going to shrink. Um, we're also already seeing substantial job losses in venues like the South Bank Centre, Sage Gateshead, um, are seeing hundreds of jobs cut. And some venues have been threatened with closure. We're also sort of very lucky that there's also a very... Um, sophisticated infrastructure and lots of people who do care and campaign vociferously for the music sector. So the Music Venues Trust have done an inordinate amount of work lobbying the government um, to save grassroots um, sectors and venues. The reopening, I mean, we were set to reopen venues uh, on the 1st of August. That's now been postponed till at least August the 15th. Um, for many venues, the reduced capacity, um, sometimes as low as 20, 25% and makes and the strict measures involved and the costs uh, just make reopening unviable for a lot of people. So many venues are choosing to delay opening to the public, some even as late as spring 2021, because they simply can't make it work with the overheads. Um, that said, there's a lot of venues who just want to try and do stuff. And like there's been, like Manic, uh, there's been a lot of interesting moves over to the digital world. And there's been some really interesting sort of initiatives. And I think we'd like to see more of that. But at the moment, the social distancing version of gigs sounds a bit soulless. I mean, everything, people are thinking of everything from driving concerts, could be a novelty. Um, because one of the, I suppose, main sort of excitements about going to concerts is the sort of communion with the artists on stage, the performers, but also with other people. I mean, one of my favourite gigs last year was a real sort of rock and roll, hot and sweaty gig with beer thrown all over the place. And uh, not always the kind of show that I go to, often in concert halls. But even for artists, the ability to perform together is quite limited. So for orchestras, the two metre distance rule and the health um, sort of regulations about brass and singing are quite um, prohibitive. Um, I think we don't really know when the semblance of normality is going to return. And with travel restrictions in place and lockdown yo-yoing, it's really hard for promoters and all festival organisers to really plan with any confidence. Orchestras uh, are really reliant on international touring as an important part of their income and profile. People like the London Symphony Orchestra, the Philharmonia, they take two years to plan their gigs. They're moving around hundreds of people. So I think, I'm just wondering what we can anticipate. I think the move to digital and streaming will be one of the biggest shifts we'll see. 
And even after lockdown and after COVID, I think we'll see hopefully some of the benefits of that. I'm in no way an advocate of supplanting real life experiences with online experiences, but I know a lot of people are thinking about the future and thinking about traveling less. And some of that is for environmental reasons. And some of it is just because of the distances and um, the expense that is likely to be involved and travel is likely to be more expensive. There's been a big rush to put stuff online. Um, but I think, I don't know, I, I don't know about everyone else, but I get a bit zoomed out and, um, you know, the realisation as well, that artists are not, if can't be, can't do stuff like that and work for free. So people are obviously looking towards really interesting digital models that are also ticketed. I think that in terms of what the future will look like, as well as people talking about traveling less, I think some of the things will be about who has resources. I think some of the bigger institutions are much more likely to sort of feel that they need to share their resources in terms of ideas, economic, the knowledge resources, their digital platforms. It's not easy um, for uh, you know, small independent people to afford putting on online work and shows. Joel, can you wrap up? I will. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for working more in public space, leaning towards outdoor events. And I think there's an opportunity for rethinking arts and funding and commercial models to create a bit more equity. Um, I'll wrap up there. You can talk more. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, okay, Alison. Hi. Yes. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about film and TV drama production, the industry. It's just a few of my personal thoughts, really. Um, so to begin with some context about the industry, um, in 2019, film and TV production spend in the UK was at an all-time high, and it was over £3.6 billion. Pounds. Um, the industry was working close to capacity. Uh, there was a headline in Screen, the trade magazine, in October 2019 that said, the UK's booming film and TV sector helped rescue the country from a potential pre-Brexit recession and pushed the economy into the black this summer, according to the Office for National Statistics. So it was busy. <laughs> But um, as soon as lockdown was announced, production stopped. Um, I mean, some development carried on and some post-production work were, were able to carry on as well. But the industry response was to try and get everything moving again. The industry really pulled together um, to try and get productions back up. Safety was the, obviously at the, the, the heart of this. Um, and trying to get people back into work, the production industry is made up mainly of freelancers. So emergency funds, relief funds and hardship funds were set up. Free training courses were popping up. Under the leadership of the British Film Institute, every organisation involved in production in the UK, from BAFTA to BECTU, via Number 10 and the DCMS, um, got involved in developing... Uh, advisory safety protocols to be able to get people back to work safely. There were industry-wide debates about the role of freelancers and about the lack of diversity in the industry. Um, 
And some TV shows did carry on filming, actually. They, I don't know if any of you saw the Alan, Alan Bennett Talking Head series for the BBC. That was shot in COVID um, times. It was shot using the EastEnders standing sets at Elstree Studios. There were all sorts of safety precautions around that. Um, but if we fast forward to now, more productions are back up and running now. Others are prepping. But it's not quite business as usual, obviously. There are swabs, masks, temperature checks, COVID consultants on set, props in sealed bags, fogging of costumes and sets, individually packed food, colour-coded armbands, visors, pods, plexiglass and remote working. So everyone is hoping that nothing goes wrong. But there's a huge demand for content um, and livelihoods are at stake. The industry has no choice. Everyone wants to and needs to get back to work. And this is an industry that is entirely used to overcoming challenges. That is what it does. The artists, technicians and crew working on productions always push boundaries, artistic, creative and technological boundaries every show. So following industry lobbying, there are two new pieces of government um, support to production. One of them is about um, self-isolation exemptions for international cast and crew coming to work in the UK. So if you have talent coming into work, they don't have to quarantine, they can have bubbles and there's lots of rules around that, but that's an exemption for the industry. And there's a 500 million pounds fund from government to allow UK film and TV productions struggling to get insurance about coronavirus, to coronavirus related insurance to start filming again. Or insurance has been a massive problem for the, um, some of the independent productions, particularly who can't afford to take a risk to start shooting again. Um, the risk of course being shut down if there are any COVID problems. So the future for production, I think um, budgets probably will increase because it's likely to take longer to make a show. And there are new costs related to all of the COVID uh, health and safety measures. I think there's likely to be more visual effects being used on productions because there's going to be fewer crowd scenes um, with social distancing and locations I think will be fewer. Um, I'm wondering whether there'll be a loss of intimacy as well between actors and directors, for example, um, if, they're, if, the, if the crew are social distancing um, and they're having to work with masks and things. I, I don't know, let's see what happens to performances. I think watch this space really. And I do have a concern about trainees and new people coming into the industry because I think they're probably going to be, uh, they're going to need to, we're going to need to support them to carry on getting more people in because we are going to need more people coming into the industry. Um, but there's huge government support for this bit of the industry. The future for audiences, I think for cinema audiences, it's obviously tricky because of social distancing. Um, some films are going to bypass cinemas, I think, and go straight to pay video on demand. So that's um, not great for the cinemas. I think we're going to lose some cinemas, some independents. But again, there's been a lobby to government. And for independent cinemas, there's a part of £30 million available to apply for through the Culture Recovery Fund. Um, what's interesting about this is that there's a requirement for applicants to show a commitment to diversity and inclusion with this fund. So I think we should uh, sort of watch this space as well and see if that becomes a, a constant going forward with public money and recovery measures. Um, 
for TV audiences, I think production budgets are, are shrinking um, because the broadcasters are losing um, advertising revenue. Um, so again, let's watch this space and let's see what gets commissioned to, to um, ends up on our box. Um, the streaming services, well, they're carrying on. They're producing shows and the audiences are going to carry on enjoying them at home. So just to finish, I think um, what's, what's interesting is this bit of the this industry the production industry is organized um it's adept at lobbying it's provided evidence-based arguments to government who've responded and given that it is apparently one of the few growth areas in the uk economy the government have no choice but to support it the industry is happy and glad to be back at work uh it's used to working in adver adverse and unpredictable conditions so there will be changes and some losses that some companies will lose along the way and independent films will continue to struggle. I think COVID has made it worse, but independent films I think have struggled for a long time to be able to raise finance, to be able to make the shows. Um, and lastly, we, we might see diversity at the heart of public support for the sector. Thank you for that. Thanks for that, Alison. Um, that's great. Okay, um, we're getting a, quite a sort of uh, interesting mixed picture of uh, um, optimism and um, dire warnings. So that's interesting how the, things are shaping, shaping up here. All right, Jonathan, your turn. Thank you. Um, at the start of the pandemic and when its ghastly impact upon the arts was first being discussed, there was a common assumption to lump film and theatre into facing the same challenges. After all, both industries are in the business of using talented actors to tell us tales and to suspend our disbelief. But that is where the, the similarity ends because while film and TV, notwithstanding their own industrial challenges of social distancing, are able to create their product in a secure environment away from the general public, theatre demands live interaction with a living audience. However brilliant a movie may be, you don't applaud it as the credits roll. But see a cracking show at the theatre and nothing comes close to the intensity of frenzied clapping as you share with the cast just how much their work has transported you. And just what is good theatre? Well, it's a raft of things. It could be Ian McKellen as King Lear. It could be Sharon D. Clarke as Linda Lohman in Death of a Salesman. Or Six, a musical about the six wives of Henry VIII that in just two years had leaped from the Edinburgh fringe via the London fringe to a USA tour and was heartbreakingly due to open in New York on the very day that coronavirus shut down Broadway. It could be 50 stunning tap dancers in 42nd Street, or it could be a theatre in Maidstone where a perfectly timed custard pie has the pantomime audience of schoolchildren, some of them perhaps at the theatre for the very first time in their lives, squealing with delight. Many would argue that of all those productions, it's pantomime that's the most important with its outreach to kids. Theatre is all of these things, and it is under attack on numerous fronts. Firstly, the government and the crippling delays that appear to be enforced upon indoor performances, and which sits so oddly as so many other activities are being allowed to open up and continue. But even more insidious is the wilderness that our major city centres and town centres are fast becoming. Traffic into the West End and Broadway is less than 10% of what it should be. Office work 
workers, shoppers, shop workers, restaurant staff are seeing their traditional activities wither on the vine. Cities are fragile ecosystems where eco is for economy that only thrive when people not only live in them, but also eat, work, shop, visit as tourists, and critically, from a theatrical perspective, choose to be entertained within a city. Boris has eased up on the social distancing for offices, so in theory, London should be more buzzing with workers, and yet it remains a virtual ghost town as people stay away. I've spent the last couple of weeks speaking with producers and theatre makers on both sides of the Atlantic, and what has struck me in these conversations has been not only their obvious love uh, for theatre, but also their hard-nosed commercialism in staring down the barrel of this current crisis. They can see the production risks, not just to the audience, but to the cast and crew, and they're massive. From an onstage perspective, it's not just keeping the actors distanced or the brass and wind players safe. A wise voice speculated to me on the ghastly scenario of a technician high above the stage controlling a production's flying scenery and curtains, and who inadvertently sheds a drop of sweat onto an actor down below on the stage. And in another sage comment, it was pointed out that being a theatre angel has long been only for those who can comfortably afford to lose their investment. Financially, theatre has been the riskiest of ventures for decades, and coronavirus is only adding to that risk register. We've seen a heroically principled stand from Andrew Lloyd Webber, outlining the massive challenges of social distancing in a major West End venue, while at the same time he's trialled all sorts of clever technologies to make his theatres as clean and as COVID-free as can be. Based on current modelling, most West End musicals depend upon a 66% capacity minimum if they are even to recoup, let alone return a profit. And those sorts of crowds can only be achieved if people feel safe enough to venture into the cities, to take the buses and the trains. However many times a theatre may be fogged for cleanliness, it ain't going to make a blind bit of difference to those who need to be convinced that it is safe for them to travel to the heart of the metropolis. Time and again in my conversations, I've had producers say to me that finding a vaccine is crucial. Because until, while, or while people are shunning the nation's city and town centres, theatres are not going to survive. I'll close from an actor's perspective on the importance of live theatre to the profession. Uh, it was the broading, Broadway leading performer, Terence Mann, who said a few years ago, uh, that movies will make you famous and television will make you rich, but it's theatre that will make you good. Right, thanks, Jonathan. That was great. All right, last but not least, Mo. Um, thank you for that, Jonathan, and everyone. Um, some eloquent arguments made there. I wanted to um, take us back for a moment to a period in history which was also a time of great turmoil, and when, like today, the arts establishment faced a major reckoning. I wanted to do that, perhaps to give us some inspiration to think about how we face the challenges ahead of us. I want to take us back to the 1940s. It was the time when the philanthropists and the intellectuals, the artists and the politicians, persuaded the government of the day to publicly fund the arts. Even amid the chaos and devastation of the Second World War, the arts establishment in Britain successfully, and in uh, the United States and Canada as well, successfully made a positive case for the arts and for public subsidy. And they did so on the basis that the arts were a public good. 
John Maynard Keynes, who was arguably the founding father of the Arts Council, was one of the art's biggest advocates. After the war, when the town planners were reconstructing Britain, he wrote to them to beg for just a morsel of mortar to build, alongside the other amenities, an art centre in every major town. His argument was that the spiritual life of the country was just as important as its material well-being. Keynes imagined a world not just of better education and healthcare, but of more arts too. It was a world in which he believed the artist and the public would sustain and live on one another. Now, I think Keynes's optimism, that relationship between the artist and the public, feels a bit utopian. Um, but he had good grounds for making his case then. During the war, the Arts Council's predecessor, SEMA, oversaw a huge rise in people's interest in live music, in drama, arts and poetry. No doubt buoyed by a kind of national pride and a spirit of the Blitz, of course, but in those war years, music concerts regularly took place in factories at lunchtime and spilled out onto the streets beyond. Theatre and arts exhibitions were toured to the regions and many arts clubs were set up around the country. So despite this backdrop of chaos and devastation, the arts um, pushed through. Now, of course, we do live in a very different time and any comparison between then and now clearly runs the risk of overstating one thing and understating another. But I do wonder what is the difference between now and then? Is it the art? Is it the public? Is it the government? Or is it simply not enough money? Because in so many areas of public life, when we've talked about the fact that this pandemic has revealed the dark underbelly of society's problems, think social care and our treatment of the elderly as one example, so too I think it is the same with the arts. Issues which already existed, like a lack of funding, engaging audiences from a wide demographic, and the precarious nature of, an, of, of employment, these are issues that had been bubbling under the surface for years. For as long as I've worked in the arts, there's been a complaint about not enough money to make art. Even when there was this dramatic um, spike in funding, 290 million pound hike under new labour, the bureaucracy that went attached to that arts money, to the social policy agenda, such as health and wellbeing and social cohesion, meant that more money was spent on administration, on monitoring and evaluating the benefits, rather than making and sharing art. Management and bureaucracy began to overwhelm the public arts sector. And the arts have become a sector, a sector of the economy in which, so the argument runs for every pound that's invested in the arts, another nine pound in revenue is raised. And it's an, a good uh, economic argument, it's one worth having. It's not, however, an argument about the arts as a pu public good. And this is something that I've been really struck by during this pandemic, how little the plight of the arts sector has captured the public imagination. I think it would be Brave Saul who asked for a morsel of mortar when you consider the public's reaction to Heather Phillips's sculpture on the existing mortar of the fourth plinth at Trafalgar Square. And to me, and that's part of the answer to this problem, not so much that the public has fallen out of uh, love with art, but I would argue the arts sector has fallen out of love with the arts. The sector seems reluctant or unable to make the case for arts for art's sake except perhaps in those rather narrow economic and instrumental terms. When the pandemic hit Italy, we saw an opera singer singing from his balcony in Florence. When the Spanish police took their guitars out to residents in the suburb of Madrid, I felt such pride in having belonged to an art sector that could lift people's spirits in a way that only the arts can. 
no one needed to monitor and evaluate and show the benefits. But here in Britain, I do feel there's been a lack of vision in the artistic response to the pandemic, a lack of relationship between the artist and the public, a response perhaps that would cost little money but would lift the public, spread the joy of music and art, in some way realise Keynes's vision of that world in which the artist and the public would sustain and live on each other. We've heard some very eloquent um, cases for the arts tonight, and I am behind them all. Um, but while we're, phys we're talking about physical distancing, which I think is obviously going to be a problem in venues, we aren't necessarily talking about the wider emotional distance between the public and the arts. So yes, life is going to be hard for the sector after the pandemic has subsided, and it will subside. It's going to be hard for all of us, I think. And we may have to accept a very different model. But if a creative response is what's required, then who better than creatives to make it? Because art itself is older than public subsidy. It's older than the venues that it resides in. It's older even than the towns and cities that Jonathan was talking about, that where arts is mostly concentrated. So I do think it's, this is a time to rethink the sector, to get rid of some of those layers of administration, the bureaucracy and the tick box, and not let art itself be confined by these models, to let the artists make art and create that shared experience for us all. Right, thank you very much, Mo. That was excellent. Um, all of those introductions were really interesting, very informative, uh, gives us a lot to think about. Um, now, I, um, I think, uh, Alistair could unmute all of the speakers and I just wanted to have an, a bit of a back and forth uh, on the panel, very depending on you really as much as anything else because there are already some hands up out there. Um, but one of the, um, I suppose the two, two kind of main issues that come out uh, apart from the contrast which are stark actually, um, particularly the live arts, music and theatre versus the arts that are kind of more, if you like, packaged and, and can be done, at, uh, kind of <clears throat> received at home. So you might have questions for each other, but one of the questions maybe we, I think we should, could usefully to consider is the issue of uh, the art sector on the one hand and the audiences on the other. And, you know, you know very interesting point that, uh, and you can kind of see that the audiences are not rushing back to um, uh, take part in the arts and to go to theatres and that sort of thing. And the point that you made, Jonathan, about um, people's concern with safety, I think is, is, is very well made, but is, is that it? Is that the well, question? I, I think people uh, can't be rushing back to the theatres, largely because they're not allowed to, because theatres aren't allowed to be open. But I think it's when one looks around at the city centres that one fears for, uh, for, for how the future may evolve. You know, there are a large number of fringe productions that are opening up as we speak, fringe and small scale regional productions in the open air. And what a glorious summer to be running such productions. And the incredible thing is those productions are selling out in the blink of an eye uh, with, with talented performers uh, producing fabulous shows. But the audiences are tiny, and whilst they are artistically excellent, they're commercially 
virtually non you know, commercially they don't feature on the, on the, on the scale of, of what this country needs so there is there is a demand for theater unquestionably yes i suppose what you're saying there then it kind of slightly reinforces the point that mo is making about the problem is with in the arts sector bureaucracy system which has not in a way has this perhaps more established a distance uh, between audiences and artists because that very direct thing about what fringe theatre does is one thing but there's also that um the way the theatres maybe the theatres aren't guilty so, so guilty of this but certainly the visual arts sector always strikes me as increasingly aloof from the public i don't know what do you think um manic or alison i mean the visual arts sector being increasingly aloof um I, I, I might disagree there. Um, I, I think, um, you know, like I said, you know, the public galleries um, uh, have get, had, had huge footfalls um, uh, last year, and obviously that's not going to happen again, but maybe that's a good thing, actually. You know, um, uh, the, the quality of experience is better when there's less people in the gallery space, in my opinion, uh, compared to theatre, where you do need that collective um kind of uh, euphoria you know of uh, appreciating uh, a piece of live work uh, live live production um i think uh, in terms of the production of art um and what is um uh, what what is being made and produced um the, the the we're kind of sidestepping quite a lot of that obviously that is maybe what is the public funded sector where it is becoming much more um, as Mo said, you know, uh, and Alison, you know, um, certain agendas are being pushed to the forefront around inclusion and diversity. But um, amongst artists themselves, I think there's um, there's great sort of um, kind of you know uh, co-support going on um, in terms of buying work and uh, and making work more affordable. So maybe there's a downsizing of. Um, of uh, the scale and production that artists um, might, have, might have been used to of big, huge public art pieces, you know, the Heather Phillipson, for example, in the fourth plinth or something. Um, uh, and much more, um, yeah, there may be restrictions in terms of the scale of production, but um, I think that might be more accessible actually to the general public in, in a sort of perverse way. Mm -hmm. Alison or I was just thinking about the problem about people not rushing to the city centres and it just occurred to me that actually they're rushing to the sofa at the moment, aren't they? Rushing to watch content, <laughs> I hate that word, but you know what I mean, at home. Um, and I think that was happening anyway. I think obviously with technology um, that was allowing people to watch films television and obviously with the all young people with their tiktoks and their whatever they're watching <laughs> um you know that that was happening anyway i suppose that people were um consuming art at home from the comfort of their front room i think this has just really exacerbated that but at the same time i don't think that i don't i mean there's always been this argument of you know back from when television was introduced, that it was going to, you know, cinema was going to end um, because people wouldn't want to see uh, films 
anymore in a theatre and and I and that's never happened and you know box office is, has been buoyant I don't know the stats but I think I don't think that cinemas are under threat apart from the social distancing acts act, um, problem I don't think that audience and I think audiences will want to go back at the same time as also watching stuff at, at home I completely get it about theatres though it's completely different um, yeah that's all I've got. <laughs> I think I jump in with saying something about the difference between going to see a, a film in a cinema, which I enjoy on numerous occasions, but the difference between running a cinema and running a theatre is just so incredible from an economics point of view. A cinema needs hardworking front of house people to sell the popcorn, keep it clean and keep the movies projected. And don't get me wrong, those are critical jobs. Um, but it's a relatively small crew. Whereas a commercial theatre requires not just those people to keep the place clean and sell the popcorn and the sweets. It also needs people to administer the company, keep the costumes up and running. The, the list, run the lights, the list is endless. And the, the economic models of how the arts are distributed between film and between theatre are just so incredibly different. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, Joel? Oh, I wanted to come back on a few things there. Um, yes, that word content for digital. When did arts become content? It's sort of, it is, it is sort of quite sort of symptomatic of our digital age. And yet, you know, I think there's a lot that the film and television industry could offer. And one of the things that I would really like to see is a lot more cross art, cross tech working, because I think the digital innovation at the moment is really key. And also the film sector has that sense of creating intimacy in digital work. Um, like if anybody's watched any of the concerts or theater shows, one of the things that they lack sometimes is that kind of filmic expertise to some of the work. Um, I also want to come back Mo about the bureaucracy and the box ticking. Um, it's really, I, you know, I find this conversation sometimes so frustrating because as, as somebody who works in a big institution, I find myself increasingly having to do HR, finance, everything else. You know, I come from an arts background and I think so many people find the same. I mean, one of the difficulties for um, a lot of organisations is yes, the bureaucracy and the paperwork, but it's often not the institution itself who's creating it, but either funding or government. The, the you know, I absolutely agree with the art for art's sake. Um, and I think there are so many people who are really fighting that corner. And, uh, but there is also a thing about public funding is accountable. You know, it needs to be accountable as well. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of criticism both ways. Either you're too bureaucratic or you're not accountable enough. And somehow it's like always trying to play that sort of balance between the two, which is an incredibly sort of fine line. And it, the same goes for, you know, the sort of whole idea of democracy around, you know, the calls for increasing sort of democratization in a sense and opening up and the arts not being elite. But then when people open it up to participation, that also gets criticised. So it's, I sometimes feel, um, yeah, I think it's about trying to strike 
the middle ground. And just one thing as well, in the music sector, so much comes from very DIY fringes of society, people making stuff in their garages. You know, we've seen the whole thing about the illegal raves. People will go out and make stuff happen without somebody else's saying so. And uh, yeah, I kind of quite feel quite excited that people still do. Good, okay. So I'm going to um, ask Mo to come in and then I will open it out to audience. I know there are a couple of people waiting. Um, and I really wanted to um, invite people to speak from their experience and raise these issues. So even if you're feeling um, overwhelmed by the issues at stake, I think there's, you know, do come in with your own experience. Feel free to do that. And I think some of the issues that, you know, are really worth teasing out are questions I think that have been raised. I know there's quite, been quite a few questions raised on the chat. Um, so, um, you know, bring those out into the conversations. The question, for example, of London-centricness and uh, regional, you know, the difference between London and the regions is, is possibly worth exploring. Um, also the question of digital, digital solutions. Are they real solutions or just... Um, uh, do they offer something for the meantime, but not really long, good long-term solutions? And um, questions of government policy and art sector policy, and do we need to kind of start thinking more imaginatively about new models? I think is something else that is worth talking about. Uh, okay, Mo, you and then I'll get the audience in. Yeah. Um, so I kind of share Joel's um, uh, reticence about uh, moving all live art and all but some of live art uh, onto a kind of digital platform and an online platform. I think it is that human shared experience, it is that conversation between the artist, the art and the audience that is what's so special about the arts. I mean, I, I, I will maintain my criticism of administration bureaucracy, partly I suppose because um, a couple of experiences I've had not working in this country, but working overseas has made me look at um, the way things can be done in a different way. I mean, I've worked in um, South Africa in, in a township where there, were, there was no electricity, there was no running water to the homes, there was a well at the bottom, a kind of water pump at the end of the street, um, and people were, you know, had one no change of clothing, basically. And yet, the art the music, the theatre, the dance that came out of that community in this tiny, not tiny, rather large actually, township, impoverished township, uh, township in South Africa was a joy to behold. It kind of touched you somewhere that I think the arts are supposed to touch you. So that's what I think about. And um, that's why I'm sort of trying to ask us to think about what art really is. You know, what is culture? What is art? Um, and how, and it is, I think, about... Um, I mean, culture literally means to cultivate the human and the natural world in, in order to create something new that can inspire us. So I, I understand there are huge economic problems. There are going to be huge problems in terms of social distancing. But if it can happen in the poorest place on the planet or one of the poorest places on the planet, then I, I'm sure we can rise to the challenge. And um, perhaps I'm being a little bit of a cockeyed optimist here, but um, you know the, the, the model that we've got at the moment. Richard um, made a, a comment in the, uh, the comment section there about if people believe that you know it's good art, they will pay more for it. I mean, one of the 
things with all this bureaucracy is we've got the data we know who comes to see the arts and we know who walks over the threshold of the cultural institutions and um you know 15 percent of the public are engaged in publicly subsidized arts and eight percent of those certainly the last time i looked at the taking part survey only eight percent of the public were were in cultural organizations so there has been i mean joel mentioned cultural democracy there has been this move to take art to where people are um, I have some criticisms of that, the creative people in places scheme. I have, I have some criticisms of that, but why not? Why not shake up that model? Why not put art and people at the center of our new model? Hmm. Okay, all right. Um, I've got a couple of speakers lined up the, in, with their hands up. So I'll ask uh, JJ Charlesworth first. Um, can you unmute him, Alistair? Or... Yeah, JJ. Um, hi, uh, thank you. Um, I mean, it's it's very interesting to to read to have this range of speakers uh, talking from different parts in the arts scene in the arts scenes, uh, because it does really show up. Uh, I think that the the different uh, kind of uh, attitude of response depending on how close you are to one another. Um, I think Manik uh, certainly was a little uh, complacent in, in thinking that really what, what COVID is good for is uh, um, allowing people to stand further away, for, you know, get a bit of a look of, of a painting uh, in an empty art gallery. I've been to a few uh, empty art galleries recently and, and yes, that is very nice, but, um, I, you know, it's a pleasant experience to, to not, uh, not have to bump into people. But um, another aspect of that really is that uh, bumping into people is what uh, civic culture is about. Uh, bumping into people and being with people uh, seems to me what uh, civic, the, the reason that culture and art uh, has a public identity is it because it's part of the civic culture of a society. It's part of what makes the society worth living in. Uh, and so it's very obvious, and, and that is a very, very long tradition that goes back at least uh, to the Greeks ancient Greeks who are happy to get together and perform arts in front of each other in a civic forum. Uh, so so it can't be overstated that there is something quite civilizationally important about getting together and not just meeting for, uh, to do business uh, or meeting to, to, to have food with, you know, or drink, but actually also to do something a, a bit more uh, sophisticated and interesting with society. So I do think that there's a, there, there is something which isn't really being touched on, which is, you know, I think uh, uh, Mo certainly started to touch on it, which is to say that there is something seriously important about defending the right to be together, to produce and see and experience uh, artistic culture. It's an important aspect of, of our society. And I think we, we, we are very complacent uh, if we start uh, forgetting about that because we are too concerned with, the rationalities of, of, of making society safe. I mean, it, you know, at some point one has to kind of say, you know, this is the price we are going to pay, right? Everybody who's, who's, who's uh, devastated because the, the theatres are shut and because the live uh, music venues are shut uh, and because uh, are, are just going to have to have the argument about, well, is this the price we are paying to stay safe? And if we are, if that is the price, and I think that's the price that a lot of people in, in society currently are assuming has already, you know, that, that decision has already been made, then tough, right? This is a serious problem. This is a serious problem because there's no end in sight. And if we are uh, not, if we are honest with ourselves, we have to have the argument about what we are prepared 
to risk uh, and how much we value exactly that thing that people have been talking about, that, 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 that uh, Mo was suggesting. Uh, and, and certainly I would defend. I mean, the other point, I think it's interesting that, um, JJ. I'll wrap it up very quickly, but Joel, I think, you know, pointed to, the first person to, to point to uh, illegal culture. And actually, to be honest, uh, the way this discussion is going, it, it points to two things. Demolish all buildings, because uh, there's no point trying to do anything in them, uh, and have everything outdoors, which is, I mean, frankly ridiculous, but there we are. But the other thing is actually, in reality, people are starting to create uh, convivial culture artistic culture indoors for themselves illegally. Uh, so, you know, I was, I was privileged enough to be at a, a, an illegal theatre uh, performance indoors a few weeks ago. If I wasn't going on my holidays this weekend, I'd be at an illegal cabaret in central London somewhere. Uh, so, uh, and of course, people are uh, organising raves left, right and centre in, in fields in Dorset and so on. So I think that really, without, to stop this kind of conversation becoming very technical and actually very kind of uh, administrative, we do have to get back to this, uh, to the question of what we value. And I think that is super important. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, what we are, are we prepared uh, to, uh, to risk and to pay for? Or what cost do we want, want to uh, assign to that, that value that, we, that, that we, uh, we give to being with each other and to produce uh, art for each other? Okay, so, thanks. Uh, yeah. Useful uh, points. Thanks, JJ. Uh, Michael, uh, unmute. Uh, yep. Oh, no, you're still muted. Okay, am I unmuted? Yep, you're there. I am. Oh, can I just do a straw poll of everyone? Could you put your hands up if you've been reading more during the pandemic, if you've been reading more books, books that you hadn't had time to read before? Anybody? Well, I have. Any, anybody else been reading more? A few. Uh, well, no, quite a few, actually. Um, yeah, in my experience, I'm with reading during the pandemic i've read more it's not i mean i work from home anyway i didn't have a job you know i I'm sort of i'm a writer and i and, and i did i did uh, run a small theater company in west yorkshire until until the virus really um um but i've been you know on the academy ideas book club it's been fantastic and also people i know I caught up with people that I never really caught up with before uh, in a while, the other end of the country through Zoom, etc. And they've joined these book clubs as well. And there has been, I went the Academy Ideas um, lecture I was at with um, Tim Parks about what well, he's, and he's written a book, which I'm yet to finish, actually. It's a book about why people don't read enough and don't finish books called Where I'm Reading From. And he spoke to me afterwards talking about what he considered the decline in, in serious reading and in, if you like, a collective reading where large groups of people read and discuss the same book. And I think, I know it's, it is, I'm tired of people, if I am sick of this pandemic and I am sick of the bloody lockdown, but so I'm sick of people saying to me, one of the good things about the pandemic is, but actually reading is, you know, it's, 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 completely individual and it's introspective and I know that yeah, everybody else the um, arts practitioners have talked about going out to things and going to theatre going to films and going to galleries etc but I think if anything reading has had a bit of a renaissance um, it's not been good I mean has that been good for publishing well depends where you are really um, it's not not a good time to launch a book. Um, 
you know, obviously there are no venues. Uh, and, you know, a lot of, in the, if you, you know, if you're down the food chain, which most writers are, you know, you sell a lot of books, a book guest reputation by, by, by doing, you know, launches up and down the country and selling them, um, you know, after, after, after you've, you've read the sort of first couple of chapters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also bookshops, they're not the Michael, most... can you make your point more quickly? Okay, I'll make the point more quickly. i tell you what the problems are going to be. I mean, I think there will be a flurry of activity um, when we do open up. I don't agree with JJ that there's no end in sight. There is, you know, there's going to be an end in, in the autumn um, for those theatres surviving. But I'll tell you what, the, the problems that are going to come out in the wash of what's left of the arts will be the increasing right, uh, racialization that's been going under the Black Lives Matters movement. I mean, people like J.K. Rowling, even in the, the, the dead times, have been cancelled. What are they going to be doing to plays? What is cancel culture going to be doing to plays, stand up, etc., etc.? And you've got the hate crime bill in Scotland, which is a threat, really, to, to, to possibly to theatre. And I, so I think a lot of those political elements that have been if you like, just on social media for the last six months, when they come out and wash in the arts, that is going to hit us like a shitstorm. Okay. Useful. Um, Asia, over to you. Let's see. Up. Oh, can't. Just trying to. I'll leave. Hang on. Yeah. There we are. Um, thank you, and thank you for remembering how to pronounce my name. Um, some of what I say uh, might be a bit of repetition, but you asked for personal experience. So in my personal experience, it is a mistake to assume there's no way to have a community online. In my personal experience, it's been extraordinary um, that um, I'm in music. I, I play early music. And um, I have attended a number of concerts where either they'd been filmed previously, so the performers were in the side chat with us, or, or they were really um, happening at that moment. But the level of emotion, these people who are doing some for free, some ticketed, um, the, the gratefulness that they expressed to those of us who were watching and listening, and they could see us in some form, even if it was just chat, um, has, has made it a, a sort of new bonding for me. And also, I've, I've been on a course, um, there's a big course for my instrument, which um, is held in the US every year. Uh, they call it conclave. Well, this year it was nonclave. And um, they managed to get not just the flavor, but a lot of the substance of the in-person class. And to see, to glimpse your friends, and, you know, even if, no, I, it's not the same. But um, please don't, don't give up on the idea of, of having a community. Um, online and, and and just a side note on that um, a lot of people say oh social media oh Facebook it's just memes well it is what you make of it and I've had incredible substantive discussions on it and and um, that's that's my approach is to take what society I can from these little typed words okay thanks Aisha <clears throat> um, useful encouraging points so I've got three more speakers with the hands up so far so I'll, I'll take those three and then um, 
ask you, ask the panel to come back and maybe respond to some of the points. Um, don't feel you have to respond to every point, just whatever you feel like you want to stress. Um, so Hal, uh, I'll leave Alistair to unmute you because I was... Yes, so uh, last, uh, this time last summer, I went to uh, London, I went to the Cape Modern, I went to the British Museum from the United States. And, uh, and I would like to go back soon and over this, uh, over the pandemic, I was uh, online and I was thrilled to discover that websites like uh, Google Ideas or Google Google has a museum website where they allow you to see all these things. It's not quite the same to see them on there, of course, but uh, but it's nice. However, it also raises a question of, um, okay, so Google is using, I presume under a license, the intellectual property of these museums, these art institutions, whether they be theaters or whatever, for some of this stuff. And uh, basically these corporations, which are already extremely dominant in uh in our economy have begun kind of taking in more and more of these arts. So the question is, of course, also during the pandemic, we've been consuming a lot of other things online and people can pirate and download things very easily. So how big will museums and other institutions maybe previously didn't have to go into this field, go into the realm of intellectual property rights and similar things in trying to really continue to make a profit during the pandemic, or uh, or is the entire idea of intellectual property rights counter to the public spirit of some of these institutions? Mm, interesting, yes. That kind of rethinking about how um, organizations cover their costs, make their money. Um, uh, so next we have Lindsay and then Nico, and then I'll ask the speakers to come back. Uh, Lindsay, Lindsay Evans. Can you unmute? Yeah, there you go, Lindsay. Hi, I was actually raising my hand about the reading, but um, as I'm okay. unmuted, uh, what I'd like to say is um, a lot of writers have found the time and songwriters have found the time quite useful for producing new content. And it's just going to be important that there's somewhere for that to go when we do finally become more lost less locked down than we are now. Mm -hmm. Great, okay, and uh, now Nico. Um, yeah, Francis Gavin in the chat asked a question about whether the internet is the main outlet for everything art. And I think as an, it, the lockdown has been an important accelerator for experimenting with digital stroke online technologies in the arts. And I think there's an important question about whether the web internet is a new uh, a new media form in the way that film or radio were, or whether it's just a medium for existing forms of art. But if it is, if it is a new media form, we've really not done a great job so far of exploiting it, and we've had access to the internet arguably for, for 50 years now and computers for even longer. Um, and I, I noted in the chat a few theatre companies, particularly the Croatian Theatre Company and Uncut Theatre, who've done interesting work actually trying to use the medium for itself in a, a new way rather than what the National Theatre and Royal Court and others have done very admirably, you know, taking theatre and presenting it online. Um, so I think that's been a positive aspect of uh, of this you know we've also i also noted that digital technologies are critical to the production of every kind of 
uh, artistic activity, not just in its delivery. But I really think we need to accelerate that because at the moment we're, you know, we were like film was in the 1910s and TV was in the 1950s and really not being ambitious enough about really engaging with digital technologies and how they can be used for human self-expression. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, panel, um, who would like to go first? Jonathan, I noticed you're already unmuted. Would you like to jump, jump in? Yes, sure. Um, and it's an interesting comment just made in that last comment about the, the increased digitalization, particularly of theatre. And I'm aware of, of, uh, of, of, of a broader use of, uh, of, of, of digital, digital media uh, for theatre. But if I sort of just talk to my own subject, um, and what, for example, you know, the National Theatre have done with, uh, with their streamings is uh, it, it's been noble it's been, and it's been very entertaining, but it has not been theatre. Um, any sort of stage production can be captured on camera, can be broadcast, can be streamed, but the nature of going to see a play is such that you can take in all that's going on around you. Uh, whenever you see a digital or, a, or something that's gone through the lens of a camera, you're seeing what the director wants you to see and nothing else. When you're sat in a theater, be it open air or be it, in, be it in a building, you're able to take in the details of that particular scene and that particular performance that you choose to look at. And it's quite a distinct difference. Yeah, Manik, you look like you've unmuted yourself, so. Yeah, I've unmuted myself. Um, <laughs> it's getting dark in my area. Um, yes, it's become <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, just wanted to get back to what JJ was saying. Uh, obviously, JJ, an art critic, and go to a lot of um, uh, exhibitions and, um, uh, and biennials and so forth. Um, but, um, you know, we can't have it both ways. You know, sometimes we kind of complain that there's too many people in the, in the public museum and you can't see anything. And it's just like, becomes like a playground. Uh, whereas my experience on Saturday was so different and it actually, you know, okay, I'm quite pleased that there's no kids running about and, um, and that there's, there's, there's much more space uh, uh, to, to appreciate work. Uh, I don't think it's purely has to be a social activity. It's about your relationship to, to the art and the artist. Um, having said that, I want to see more uh, kind of uh, uh, illegal activity. And uh, so I completely agree with, JJ on that, um, uh, having been to uh, uh, an event myself um, of a very small, intimate, no one was socially distanced, no one was so, uh, wearing a face mask, everyone was kissing and cuddling, you know, it's great, and uh, all shaking hands. Um, and I th I'm really hoping that the, the, the shake-up that COVID has created will start to unleash that kind of... Uh, um, uh, that kind of bottom-up activity, you know, from artists, from small theatre companies, from performers, uh, and um, and we're going to, you know, so for example, my my son who's plays in a sort of a Afro jazz band gave a private performance in someone's private garden with a bunch of other 17, 18 year olds. We may see more of that, you know, and um, uh, so so that that kind of spontaneity of what what's going to happen rather than heavily bureaucratized, um, publicly funded um, uh, art activity um, might start to um, uh, be shaken up a lot more. So I agree with uh, you know, um, what Mary is saying. Um, I think there, there, there might be a sort of new creativity unleashed 
um, where uh, the artists and the small theatre companies will just get out a bit more to engage uh, more directly rather than um, through various kind of processes of administration and bureaucracy um, with the public. Um, uh, there's a wonderful film that came out in 1962, early 60s, by uh, Machin Ivory called Shakespeare Waller. And it's a, we sh I'd recommend everyone to watch it again. I think it's, it'd be highly inspiring to revisit that film about a small English theatre troupe going around the villages of India, um, but finding it a struggle because the growth of cinema taken over uh, and more people flock into the cinema rather than uh, seeing live, live work. So we're kind of... Um, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to just see more stuff in village halls in, in South, you know, kind of uh, uh, secret places and, uh, and venues that are unlocked. Um, and um, that's very exciting. I think, you know, maybe bring back the 70s and the early 80s again. <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, okay, uh, Alison and then Joel and then Mo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, again. I want to defend theatre live, National Theatre Live, Opera Live, Ballet, all of those things in the cinema, because um, I was going to see them before COVID, before lockdown, um, because I think that if you can't afford to be in the room where it happens, to quote Hamilton, um, I, I'd rather be in a different room to see a version of it than the actual thing live. I love live theatre, obviously, but I also love being able to see it and being able to take my teenage girls to see opera without having to risk, you know, the fact that they want to leave at half time and the, the money that that costs. Or my parents in Birmingham can see the same thing as I have um, and we can talk about what we've seen. So I, I, I think, I know it's not what the director intends us to see, but I think it's, a, a, it's, I think it's good enough and I'm very glad for it. So I, I approve of that technology. Um, just about as well about the price to pay JJ's point about is this is this the price that we pay is this what what are we prepared to risk and just from a different perspective I think you know whatever we think about all of the protocols and the health and safety and and um, the social distancing and, and whatever we think about that for crew if it means that they can get back to work and earn some money um, then you know making um, you know, using their craft and getting back to work, making film and TV, then that's got to be a good thing as well. Um, so I think, you know, that's just a, a different side to that. Um, and I agree, I think Lindsay was talking about development. It, it's interesting, the, the question about are you, you know, who's reading more? Um, lots of people have just been working more, actually, but from home, which, um, you know, has it... Well, I think he's miserable, but but lots of development being going on, lots of writers writing, lots of deals being done. Um, and, and I agree the, the point is now to get them made and out there and seen by audiences. OK, so who's next? Uh, Joel, did you want to say something? Yeah, um, yeah. some interesting points and sort of questions um, to respond to. I think... <clears throat> One of the things, uh, I, I think the digital opportunity is huge and I agree, I think it's Nico who was talking about that. I think there is a real opportunity to accelerate um, the opportunities around that. Um, Organisations like Digital Catapult have been giving out kind of grants to artists and really trying to sort of connect with the creative sector because there is 
so much opportunity. I don't think it will replace face-to-face live experience. And I think particularly for music, the hustle and bustle and the feeling of being part of a big crowd, moving as one animal in a sort of gig or in a concert hall and that thrill. But it's a very different experience. And I think it's one that people need to experiment with. And I think the more that people across different art forms and technologies work together, the better. Um, JJ, that thing about the civic role that art plays, I think that is really important. I, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, but I think there's something that's sort of coming up. Um, and I think it's something, Mo, you talked about um, South Africa and the artists and the stuff that just happens on the street. And Manic, you're talking about the sort of village hall. There's room for all of that. I mean, that's one of the things about, that is so fantastic about our art sector generally, is we have so many different layers. We've got the really high professional touring layers. There's things like the Opera House and, you know, the National Theatre. And then we've got a very DIY culture alongside that. And all of it is interdependent and feeds in, you know, the opportunities for artists. But I wouldn't want to go back to the 70s or the 80s. I think we have got a fantastic infrastructure in this country. And when you go to places like South Africa, I also spent quite a bit of time in Johannesburg. People are struggling to get their art to a level and be paid. And one of the most common things I hear internationally when I do go overseas is we don't know how to make a living. So artists don't get to be full-time artists because they have to do something else. And I think we're very um, lucky to be in that position. So, you know, I think we should celebrate all those sort of different layers, right from the DIY to the very sort of high art end. Okay, um, I'll ask Mo to come in and then I've got four people, Johnny, Mandy, Kim and Claire, and I'll come out to you soon. Okay, Mo. Um, I love this idea of the illegal cabaret, by the way, uh, JJ, I wish I'd known about that. I mean, I think if the, in pre-pandemic times, if the government had closed the theatres and the music centres, there would be an outcry. I think artists would be saying, why on earth is the state stopping me from making art? And yet we haven't really seen that kind of outcry. We haven't seen that demand for artists to make art. We've seen demands for funding to keep the venues safe and jobs intact until they can safely open again. Um, And that, that sort of brings me back back to JJ, what JJ said earlier about what what risks are we prepared to take? How much do we want a cultural life, an artistic life in this country? And um, I'm just not seeing the artists pushing for that. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're saying let's stay dark until it's safe for us to open in a risk-free environment which you know whether we get a vaccine or not COVID-19 is going to be here to stay so um, this is what I worry about that the art sector is is asking for money to not go back and create art okay yeah Uh, Johnny are you unmuting yeah I sorry I just was trying to unmute yeah Um, yeah, um, uh, I, I'm not sure who was talking about um, the, you know, the the personal benefits and value of of of, um, of th- that can be found in lockdown and and the 
um, the communion that you can find through working digitally. I mean, I acknowledge all that, but I don't particularly want to celebrate it because it's, um, it's, a, it's something that if, if, if you're an artist trying to make stuff or you're working in the arts, then monetizing what you do is really important. And I think this idea that we can all personally grow um, through, uh, th through lockdown is a luxury. Uh, if, you know, if you've, if you've, if you've got an income from elsewhere, that's fine. But for, for many, many practitioners in the arts, we need to be earning money and getting out there doing the thing that, that, that we do. Um, so I, um, I, I find that argument sort of utopian. And uh, if we really care about there being um, people making stuff um, for, for the pleasure of others, then uh, then we've, I'm, I'm with JJ and with Mo that, that this, this is about uh, fighting for particular values. And, I, and I, I agree with Mo that the art sector has, the subsidized art sector has sort of lost its bottle. Um, but that's, a lot, that's been a long time coming. That began really, as far as I'm concerned, with, with new labor. It began with that um, policy-based instrumentalizing of the arts. We lost the ability to talk about art for art's sake. Um, we were taught that it was a, an ignoble thing to do, that, it was, uh, that we were ignoring um, part of the purpose of art if we did that. And I think that, that there's, there are generations now of people leading companies who, who think that way and who are ashamed of making art for art's sake arguments. Um, so um, I, um, you know, I, I, I think Mo's argument is really, is, is a really powerful one. There are, there's, there are, I see no companies or artists out there saying, for God's sake, won't you let us um, get on with stuff? And really, I think that's where we're heading. That um, I, I'm, I'm more with JJ now. I mean, I, 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 I'd like to see resistance to, uh, to the tyranny of lockdown. Because if, we're, if live performance doesn't involve the co-presence of people, if you're not breathing the same air, then it's not theater, it's not live music. And there, is, there are profound limitations on what we can do online. Um, you know, the, the digital utopians are wrong on that. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Johnny. Uh, Mandy. Uh, being unmuted. Hello. There you go, yeah. Oh, okay, it's, it's John. Um, I, I wanted to just share real briefly what we've been doing for the last few weeks. I was away in Qatar for nine months and I'm on vacation, going back to work in two weeks. And in the last three weeks, we've had about 14 um, guided tours of London and Bath by uh, Blue Badge Guides live, um, well, digitally. Um, and it's just been absolutely wonderful. Uh, we've been in, uh, in London, basically, um, almost every day, three days a week, enjoying the sights and sounds. Uh, we, we draw on our memory, of course. Um, and uh, just yesterday, we had a tour. It was called uh, Food Glorious Food, uh, kind of revisiting uh, the British cuisine. And my whole life, I said, um, any country that gives the world Shakespeare and the Beatles has nothing left to prove. Um, but, but 
the guide got me, uh, gave me a, a, a whole new view of British cuisine. And when he was done, we talked, he said, would you like a different kind of tour? And I said, well, what about um, the parks? And uh, today he wrote to me, he said, I got on my bike and I, I don't know if you went to Hyde Park or St. James, but he's preparing a digital tour, um, which we will pay for, um, of the parks. We're going to learn about the Royal Parks. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, the sky's the limit. I can't have this kind of connection with the UK in any other way right now or foreseeably in the future quite as easily as I am enjoying it. Okay, great, thanks. Um, who have I got next? Uh, somebody, uh, I've just been asked to explain how you get yourself um, noticed. And what you need to do is um, go to the participants um, little kind of the icon at the bottom of the screen, click on that, and then in the bar to the side, it offers you the opportunity to raise your hand. So just press that. Um, so if you do that, then I'll see you clearly. Um, yeah. And I've got um, currently four more speakers and I'll take a few more and then I'll ask the um, panel to come back and make their final uh, brief comments. This has been a really fantastic discussion so far. Really interesting, eye-opening. Uh, Mandy, uh, your turn. Oh no, Mandy, you've done it, sorry. Yep, lower <laughs> hand. Kim, you're next. Hello. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you. Um, really nice to be here. Thank you to Manic for the invitation. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you to all the speakers and, and seeing everyone here. Um, I thought it was really interesting um, that we touched on um, the galleries um, at the beginning. Um, something that, that came to mind during, during that time was um, the um, unfortunate um, proposition that the students and the graduates this year have been faced with um, a lot of them have had to have their graduate art shows online um, however they have they've managed to do that and a lot of them have had um, digital seminars um, and got some really nice ind industry professionals in to help um, assist that um, but tying in with other other parts of the discussion things that um, JJ has mentioned such as civic pride and uh, things within um, that Joel's mentioned within the venues um, and the kind of musical um, capsules of, um, of again civic pride um, I think you know the, the cultural capital and the value is really important driving for, forward and something that I noticed that um, maybe I might have missed it but um, it's about the development of, of new policy and how that really can kind of interact and become quite rhizomorphic um, I think that the aspect of, of new uh, policy management going forward really kind of can underpin modern heritage and really what, what um, our own kind of rights are kind of with um, the aspects of civic pride and placemaking going forward um, is really something that we can, that we can look uh, more into because uh, I know Hal was talking about the digitization of, of museums and, and um, how Google have helped to manufacture that a lot more. Um, I have a history working in kind of public spaces um, and doing a lot of alternative exhibitions. So I think that could be something that could be tied in quite nicely, as well as, um, you know, going back to the use of um, universities and other studios that could help uh, independent and freelance musicians and creatives. You know, it's about 
tying in and, and building those relationships. So not really having a top-down processing, but really going from the grassroots and developing that network. And I think, you know, something like the um, artist support pledge is a great example of that, because if there's already been 20 million pounds and counting that's been, you know, raised, um, that just shows how the diversifying of a global and, and, you know, even national local networks can really help to develop um, more um, tailored policies for each each sector and perhaps each borough as well. Thanks, Kim. That's really useful points there. Um, next, I've got Claire and then John. Uh, yep, there you go. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the really enjoying this conversation. Uh, very stimulating. But I, I wanted to mention that um, when I said that I was coming to this debate on social media, quite a number of people said, what a load of self-indulgent nonsense. And somebody said, are you going to spend an evening with the whingers and the sponges? Now, I, I, I think it's worth noting that, you know, for many people, I think this refers to something that Mo said, that, that for a lot of people, sadly, the way that the arts as a institutional uh, response to the COVID crisis has not been all these wonderful innovations that everyone's talked about tonight, but have been seen to be saying, give us some money to keep us going, but we're not opening, as people have said. And I, and I think you can't underestimate that that has not been a great way of selling the importance of the arts in the public sphere. So um, just bear that in mind that it's not, we all love the arts, but the arts have to make it their case and they haven't made their case other than to the government for money to not open in many instances. I haven't heard that case. I've heard it well made tonight, but very little else. I think it was Mark who, who talked about the tours of London and what amazing, I think his name was Mark from America saying what an amazing, and that's brilliant. You know, I, I, I get that because I think we've all experienced these Zoom meetings with the Academy of Ideas have been invaluable the wonders of innovation we've all been forced to be creative try and come up with new ways there's been some fantastic initiatives but it really is just that it's a it's a substitute for the real thing and the truth is is that no matter how many intimate guides of london you might have had online which i'm not going to try and criticize is not the same as coming to london london is a real city and a live city and actually, it's all the better for sometimes not having a very tailored guide, but just the whole chaos of it is part of what makes it a wonderful place. And I think that the parallel could be said about, uh, about the arts as well. Um, I think that uh, Jonathan and JJ both made very strong points about sociability and civic spaces and, uh, and, and this being part of our civic space. So my, my final point is that uh, something that was referred to by Michael. I don't think we've got time to deal with it now. I hope maybe, Wendy, you might kind of come back to it. It's highly contentious. But in the midst of all this lockdown, the arts being closed down, the arts have actually played quite a central, have had quite a central role in politics during this lockdown. But sadly, it's been about censorship of the arts and the arts haven't always defended themselves. So there's been a cancel culture atmosphere that's emerged in which the arts, or at least contentious, I mean, how do we feel about the Mark Quinn statue in Bristol? The whole statue tumble, you know, in other words, the culture wars have 
actually made the arts a subject of some discussion. Lots of things have been banned or cancelled uh, uh, from a, a range of things on, 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 you know, films and so on. You're all familiar with it, uh, novelists and so on. And, and, and I can refer to it. But the reason I'm saying that is because in a, in a kind of popular public way, the discussion on the arts has not been this one we're having here, but it's either been the arts begging for money but not offering the public live art, or it's been the arts joining in a rather censorious uh, culture of getting rid of, or you know, trying to cancel other artists who don't fit in with some contemporary uh, discussions. You know, obviously you're aware of the Black Lives Matters background and so on and so forth. But I don't think that the arts can just float about having a discussion about how they've coped under COVID without recognising that not all of it has been so hunky-dory or popular. And uh, they've got, there's got to be a little bit more self-criticism, in my opinion. Okay, yep. Um, John? Yeah, okay. Um, just a little bit more on digital presentation. I, I'm just wondering if there's a halfway house here. Um, there's somebody who... Uh, tries to ration their amount of screen time per day. I, I have to admit, I find digital presentation a little tedious, but uh, it is where we are. Um, I might also be representative of that sector of the population who's perhaps a little bit hesitant about jumping on a train and diving into a, a city straight away. But here we are with village halls, vacated shopping centers, etc., all around the street corner. So is there not an opportunity for perhaps um, a platform that can deliver a variety of arts to localize cellular communities, uh, small groups of people are comfortable uh, coming together, albeit this should only be an interim measure. You know, we're, we're not going to be here forever, but it, it is one way of uh, providing a lifeline and perhaps uh, engaging with a, a population who, um, would not normally um, uh, uh, enjoy the, uh, the, the world of live cinema in the, in the West End of London. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, okay, now I've got Jeffrey, Barbara, and then Asia, and I think we'll, um, I'll bring the uh, panel back after that. Uh, Jeffrey. Uh, thank you very much. I just wanted to follow up on one or two of the things that were being said about what artists were up to or not up to. And I was beginning to think that I was living in a parallel universe as to what some people were saying. I run the network of off West End theatres. It's of 120 uh, fringe and alternative theatres uh, across uh, Greater London. Um, and and what's, it's been a very interesting development because while the majority of the theatres have, have either gone dark or semi-dark or have sort of not been presenting shows specifically because they can't open and they've been busy trying to uh, negotiate their future. What has replaced that has been a deluge of online creativity. Um, you know, we now have over 600 companies who are contacting us about presenting their shows under the banner of, of an online fringe performance. I mean, partly I have to say because we've offered an award scheme to sort of, you know, try and recognize the online show. So obviously that's going to attract some attention. And of the, the hundreds of shows that are being now submitted on, online, 
no one is going to pretend that all of them are fantastic. But what it does reflect is the fact that there are going to be artists out there, and there are artists out there who, whatever else is happening, are going out of their way with the few resources they have in their friends' kitchens or whatever to create some art. And I suspect that what we're talking about a lot here in terms of the large-scale organizations and the problems and the challenges and so on and so forth, that's all true. But let's not forget that out there, and I'm sure it's not just theater, I'm sure there are visual artists and others who are working on their art all the way through this, 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 these challenging times. And I think that, that what is going to be interesting is how what happens to, to the new ways of working that some of these creative people are finding and how that is going to be translated into the future. And I think that's going to be an interesting blend and mix of some of the points that have been made about the value of the re-emergence of live performance, but the sort of, you know, the, the change in mentality about the way in which we might approach online performance. And the only thing I would say about uh, just a final point is I think there is a huge danger that if there is going to be a, a, a development of online whatever it is, screenings, performances, art shows, and so on and so forth, the danger is that the smaller and the, 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 the younger creative people are going to be drowned out by those larger organizations who've got the resources to become the large-scale providers and compete with, and not compete with, be on the same level as Netflix and National Theatre Live and so on and so forth. And I think the worry is how within that new mix, we make sure that there are going to be sufficient platforms and profile for the young creative people on whose, you know, whose imagination and creativity will be our future. And okay. I'm going to waffle now, so I'll stop. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you. Okay, so now I've got um, Barbara, Aisha and Norman, and I think that will have to be it after Norman. So, Barbara. First of all, I'd like to say what a superb panel. I've enjoyed listening to all of them. But there are two points that are actually very important, whether you're not in London, as I'm not, or in London, and that's getting the audiences in there. Theatre, to my view, is not theatre without an audience. You have to get them there. And you're talking about, I'm not talking about two or three or four, but the coats loads. Um, I live in Cardiff. We have a very big and very successful theatre in the Wales Millennium Centre, and there are coats loads of people. I don't know if any of you have seen the coat companies are in difficulties. That is one very important factor, and another one is at both ends of the scale, the younger people and the older people, the effect on their mental health and their physical well-being of not being able to get out to a theatre, to a concert, is huge. And I think on that level, there is maybe a possibility that more could be done to get some government help. Good. Good points. Aisha. Uh, thank you. Um... I wanted to say, yes, the way we go about dealing with the virus is very important. And uh, the person who was talking about tailored policies, yes, very good point. But I just wanted to say that ultimately, however, 
This is not about fighting other humans. Ultimately, the virus doesn't care about our civic rights. So um, whatever methods we can find, let's not um, only blame others and say, you know, rights, 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 because, you know, the virus doesn't know English. Okay. Uh, and last, but surely not least, uh, we've got Norman. I feel slightly nervous about being the closing statement tonight because there's been some. There's been some extraordinary points made tonight. Um, I'm sitting here as a, an actor singer who obviously had his livelihood completely uh, taken away from him uh, in the blink of an eye. Um, I was. I was wanting to jump in at the point where we were talking about, I think, our, our nation's attitude towards the arts. Uh, um, and it kind of ties in with what I wanted to put my hand up about. And as I've, I've twice heard a comment made about the arts asking for money in exchange for giving nothing in return, which I may be generalizing those points, but what I think the arts have been asking for um, is just the same level of attention and financial support that seem to have been somewhat lacking. Um, and uh, the, the support for everybody else was very, very quick in being dispersed with. And um, as one of those, unfortunately, one of those limited companies, sole director who paid dividends, I have not benefited from anything that the government has had to offer. And it's, it's a small indication, I think, of what the arts in general was trying to say, is that it's not our fault, the pandemic. It's nobody's fault. But if you're going to take care of all the other industries, you have to take care of the arts too. And if you're not taking care of the arts, then you're somewhat enforcing um, and uh, reinforcing the notion that the arts isn't that important. And when it came with the rescue package, of course we all went, wow, and we can't do much at this point. Of course not. We have to ride this out. And it will pass and we will find a way to, to, um, uh, to move on. But we need to survive. Um, we can't let things just completely disappear. We can't, allow, we can't take the, the risk of losing incredible artists, incredible performers, because they can't simply afford to keep that going. There are countries where when, when performers are at work, they are subsidized by the government. They're they recognized as, as an industry that, 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 that when they give, they give. And when they can't, because, you know, because it's a, an, an industry where it's hard to always remain employed, the government goes, well, you know, we appreciate that you're a working professional and we will help you out. Okay. So I did take slight umbrage with this, this notion that we're asking for money for nothing. And I say we, I mean, of course, the arts. It's not for nothing. It's to make sure that when all of this is over, we can hit the ground running, that we're all ready to go, that we're not having to try and claw ourselves out of debt before we can put on another um, yep. small production or big production. Points well made. Okay, so I'm going to bring the panel back. Uh, I think shall we do in the order of um, original speaking. So Manic, if I can remember your... Perhaps I'm, I'm muted. Yes, Manic, there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gosh, um, there's a lot to kind of come back to, but just... Um, uh, the most important 
thing you want to make point yeah I, I mean i think um going back to um uh a couple of speakers john Rowland and kimberly were talking about you know um i think the sort of devolution of uh, of culture is really important and um and it's a kind of a grassroots network of supporting each other and therefore kind of uh, building your audiences again. Uh, and, and that's really, I think, what um, the, the kind of things, the inspirations that we could start taking from, uh, taking back to. And that, that might be a sort of 70s and 80s spirit of, uh, of what the arts were. Um, you know, back in the uh, early 80s under Thatcher, you know, we had, uh, I think it was the Enterprise Allowance, where, which was the lifeline for many artists because... You know, you weren't having to prove how many jobs we were applying for and stuff like that. You know, it was pretty light touch. It was a level of money that supported loads of artists and musicians and uh, actors. Um, you know, let's, let's go back to that again. You know, so a shake-up is really needed. Um, uh, the big institutions, uh, they need the shake-up. You know, uh, I think we all realise that it's just too many layers of, um, of stuff going on rather than the actual original uh, idea of going to a gallery and seeing work. You know, you have in so many other kind of uh, 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 agendas at play, uh, rather than the back to basics approach. Um, so, I think COVID will uh, could, and if we just like you said, you know, as people just stop, um, uh, as Claire said, you know, the kind of whinging and moaning, but to look at a, a kind of resurgence in the new Renaissance um, through what we get, what's going on, not to kind of stop making work and so often saying we haven't got enough government funding for it, but to do it ourselves. Um, so more salons, more secret performances, more private performances, more kind of grassroots uh, community-based uh, activities, um, bring back the amateurs. You know, uh, there's a whole growth of people learning stuff, like I said, online. And um, uh, so, for example, you know, artists have been complaining about the supply chain for... Um, uh, for paints is being disrupted because there's such a huge demand for, for acrylics, you know, because people are doing more painting at home, more, more kind of online classes and stuff. And I think that's not a bad thing, actually, you know. So um, there is something that I think could be positive um, out of the crisis. Okay, great. Thanks, Manik. Uh, Joel? I'm just unmuting. Um, Manik, I do really agree with you about, and the points made about grassroots, um, but I will stick to my uh, original thing that actually it's a huge ecosystem and that's one part of it, and the professionalisation and the artists get paid and there's an opportunity to have um, a sort of, you know, a sort of high-level arts with huge productions is also something that is really exciting. Um, there's a lot of antipathy I can hear towards bureaucracy and sometimes I'm not sure if people are holding it up as a bogeyman that's much bigger than it really is because the people that I know that work in arts absolutely passionate about arts and art for art's sake and they hate the bureaucracy and the paperwork that is happening across all sectors in teaching, in education and um, it's been imposed upon a lot of people. Um, Norman, I thought your point about, uh, you know, about needing to survive, I thought that was a really good point to end on actually. It is the funding that people have been asking for is to make sure that the infrastructure itself does not collapse in on itself. Because in the music sector, a lot of the grassroots venues, the venues that disappear, 
those are the places where people, uh, you know, a lot of artists play and perform, and without them, everything will collapse on its own. I think there are lots of things that we provide. It's not just about keeping the crown jewels or the, the sort of things. I think it is about, you know, community arts, about the village hall stuff, about small grassroots venues. But I think they are all really important. And um, it's a lot of people's livelihood in the music sector. 200,000 jobs, you know, of people of all different levels, from sort of roadies to riggers to lighting designers, costume makers. They're really important. This is people we're talking about, human people. Okay, thanks, Jill. Alison. Thanks, uh, Lindy. So um, I, I just wrote a note on, for myself saying I can't wait back. I can't wait to go back to live theatre. And then I, when I was reading it back, I thought it actually I read it and they said I can't wait to go back to life. And I think I think that's the point. We're all I don't know about anybody else, but it's I'm so bored of sitting at this desk, you know, on my own working. Um, and I can't wait to go back to to the cinema, to live theatre, to see live art, but and to live again through all of those things. But having said that, you know, there are loads of people all over the country sitting at their desks like me and like some of us, you know, getting things done and being creative and creating work and creating opportunities for new work in the future when we can get back to life. Um, but also, I do, you know, I, I, I love telly. I don't know if anybody else does. Um, and I love watching art. I, you know, I think telly and is art as well. And there's some incredible drama on telly that, um, that is completely brilliant. And I love watching that at home and watching things online as well as the live um, art that that we can see that they I think um, you know film and theatre they don't replace each other they've both got um, you know they're both really important obviously um, I uh, Norman's point about uh, about support as well I know in film and TV most of the crew a lot of the crew also didn't get any support because of this anomaly about being a company and being paid dividends technical thing but um, you know Soon into lockdown, I remember hearing on the Today programme, actually, a couple of people from the film industry, and there was this really great guy, uh, an assistant director, just saying, you've got to get back to work. And it's the first time I'd heard anybody say that, you know, in the news, we've got to get back to work. We've got no choice. We've got to get back to work and we're going to find a way of doing it. Um, and so, you know, and that's what I love about film and TV industry. I'll leave it there. Okay, thanks, Alison. Jonathan? Um, so I'm just going to recap to, to three of the points that were made recently from the audience. I thought, Norman, your comments, speaking from the point of view of a performer, uh, were, were, were passionate and perfect. Barbara, when you spoke about the importance of theatre to the audience, again, you know, a, a critically important feature. And Jeffrey, your celebrating of the work that was, was being done by so many theatre companies looking to endeavour uh, in, in to make what they can uh, in this strange and bleak world. But I, I want to end on, one, on a positive note that I discovered in, in my research for this evening, which was chatting to uh, a producer in New York, who is a very successful producer, who currently still has funding 12 productions in development. 
um, working with writers and development, working with writers and creatives. And for me, that is what is needed for the future of theatre, as well as hardworking performers. It needs the people who can make theatre to actually be behind the art form and to support it. Um, and I got a lot of heart and inspiration from hearing this producer talk about what he's doing for the future. And I think there will be a future. There needs to be confidence. Good, thank you. And Mo? Um, so I'll, um, I'll agree with uh, what Jonathan said towards the end there about the people that make art getting behind the art that they make. Um, and this is really, I think, the central point I wanted um, to make tonight is getting behind the art. And um, Claire mentioned earlier about cancel culture and the culture wars and the cultural sector's role within the culture wars, which I feel has not been necessarily on the side of celebrating great culture. Um, somebody mentioned in the chat about um, arts and young people um, and um, we've had lots of conversations about the lack of funding in um, uh, schools uh, to pr provide arts. And, but one of the things we, we haven't talked about is the way arts is not embedded in the curriculum in the way that it once was, and that we are dumbing down the arts offer that we make to young people. We are giving them Stormzy because they can relate to it better than Mozart. We are saying Shakespeare is too complex um, for young minds to grasp that it doesn't have that transcendental universal quality that I remember us talking about when I was at school in the 1980s. Um, finally, I don't think digital presentation is the way around this. Um, I, I remember working in theatre, live theatre, dreading um, them putting cameras on the production because it never looks the same as it does. And although we've advanced far more um, recently, um, the reason I think you enjoy uh, National Theatre Live is because you've been to the National Theatre or you've at least experienced live theatre and that you draw upon that real experience of being live in a venue. So that would be my urge that um, the art sector needs to push to get things open, to make art, to take it to people and I don't mean that it has to be grassroots arts in the grassroots communities. We can take fantastic art anywhere we want um, and we can do things outdoors and we can reconfigure venues but we really have to start pushing um, to um, put art and people uh, back at the centre of the art sector. Okay let's unmute everybody and give our panel a round of applause. That was really um, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So that discussion I felt raised a huge number of issues.